If you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn in them. If you've been with us, you're expecting me now to say to the book of Romans. But between now and Easter time, this is the time on the church calendar that is known as Lent. And for those of you who are not aware, Lent is a period historically of 40 days that symbolized the fasts of Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And so we are going to be looking at a series, and I'm going to be taking various passages through Luke's gospel that I call Encounters with Jesus. And they're basically snapshots of Jesus' life. And while we don't follow the church calendar in a way that I would call legalistically, it is a discipleship tool that helps us to structure our Christian life and teaches us things like repentance and putting to death our sins and following Jesus, issues of discipleship during this Lenten season that culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for the next several weeks, we will be looking at different areas, different snapshots of Jesus' life, ministry, and work, where he triumphed over the devil in the wilderness. And we'll look at his glory in the transfiguration. We'll look at the reality of judgment and the triumph of grace. And finally, as he enters his city, Jerusalem, in order to undergo his final cosmic battle with the devil on the cross and his ultimate victory in the resurrection and the promise of the hope of a new world. As I've been saying, resurrection gets the final word. But the pattern, and we have to learn the pattern, is suffering and then glory. Too often, very practically in the Christian life, we want heaven now. You know, and there's a reason we are called to search our hearts with all vigilance. So much of our Christian life is about demanding the desiring heaven, that's fine. Demanding it now might be outside the sovereignty of God. And so Lent is a period of time of reflection. It's a period of time of confession, a period of time of repentance, a period of time leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite commentators is a man by the name of N.T. Wright, and he put it this way. He said, Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty, not because God is mean, or enjoys finding fault, or points his finger, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleansed, of being ready for all the good things that he now has in store. And so now, this year during Lent, we are going to be looking at encountering the real Jesus, his person, his redemptive work, leading up to the culmination in his death and resurrection. And this morning, see if you've had that for a bit of an introduction, you're ready for me to read out of Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. This morning, it's Jesus' confrontation in the wilderness at the hands of the devil. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Friends, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would show us Jesus and that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the glorious riches of your inheritance together with the saints, and the mighty working of your power, your resurrection power that is at work within us. That was like when you raised Jesus from the dead and have put all things under his feet. Open the eyes of our heart that we'd be filled with hope, even as we see how we have to battle in life, how we go through temptation, how we walk through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Holy Spirit, may you be our teacher. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to go a little old school with you. When I was growing up, and you know I turned 61 yesterday. Okay, so yes, getting older. I know some of you are still looking at me and going, Jeff, you're just a kid. And that makes me feel so much better because I don't feel like just a kid. Okay? But when I was growing up, one of my favorite television shows was the old Batman show. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, whatever they do, Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer and whoever plays Batman in the movies. I'm talking Adam West and Burt Ward on the TV screen, the little TV. Some of you are nodding your head. Remember this? And I would love how Batman and Robin would get in some sort of predicament. Some of you are going to have to look, you're young enough, you're going to have to look this up on YouTube later. Okay? But now for the rest of us that are remembering with me, okay, Batman and Robin would get themselves in some sort of predicament where you would think there's no way they're getting out of it. It is helpless. It is hopeless. And then all of a sudden they'd come and then they would have some sort of big fight with the bad guys. And this was my favorite part. Because across the TV screen, it would go, bam, kaplooey, whack. They would do that. And Batman would win. The Batmobile would come out. It would be the end of the story. The hero wins again. And I'd be like, wow. I want to be like Batman when I grow up. Now remember, I was like, this is like 1969. I was like seven years old. We all, don't we love superhero movies? Don't we love to have our heroes? But here's the thing, and Tim Keller likes to say this. He talks about, if you look at most action movies, the players and characters, the heroes in these, are typically one-dimensional cartoon characters. Yes, that's Batman. One-dimensional cartoon characters. They're simple and one-dimensional. And as a result, Yes, they're heroes on the screen, but there's no real engagement, no real relationship with them. 
But he says instead, the God of the Bible manifested, revealed in the incarnate Jesus. The Word become flesh. The God of the Bible is complex. He is Father. He is Friend. He is King. He is Lover. He is Judge. He is Glory Himself. All at the same time. And we get into trouble when we choose one over the other or one at the expense of any of the others. You lose personal engagement and you don't have the biblical God. And yet this is what most of us tend to do. We want a one-dimensional God that loves us but never says no. Or we're stern, you know, and we've been like, yeah, my God's holy and disciplined. And we've never heard of compassion or empathy. The biblical God is all of these things. When you only have one part of this, you actually avoid encountering the real God. And you avoid relationship with Him. Luke is confronting us with the complex, multidimensional Son of God, the Messiah, fully God and fully human, 100% God and 100% man, the Lord of all peoples. And one of the themes that we will encounter as we go through this series on encountering Jesus is what theologians have called the theme of Christus Victor, or the victory of Christ. And that is understanding the work of Christ from the specific vantage point of a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the forces of darkness. In other words, looking at Jesus' person and work, his redemptive ministry, seen through the prism of spiritual warfare. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Jesus as the solution to the problem of Adam. When the gar- in the garden the serpent came in and he tempted and seduced and was victorious over the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Here's Jesus as the second Adam being victorious over the devil. The Gospels present the public ministry of Jesus as bracketed in the beginning and at the end by Jesus' battles with the devil, the ruler of this world, beginning with the temptations in the wilderness and culminating in the final battle on the cross. And here we have not simply a hero, not simply a Batman or a Spider-Man or a Superman, but we have the superhero that we all need, the superhero that is our hope. And according to this passage in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is a hero in at least two respects. He is our transcendent hero, and yet he is a very personal, relatable hero. He is a transcendent hero, and he is a relatable hero. First of all, a transcendent hero. Look at the opening verses of our text, and they read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing. He fasted during those days. And when they were ended, here we get what a picture of his humanity. He was hungry. After coming out of the wilderness, Jesus begins his public ministry in the power of the Spirit. Friends, do you recognize we can't do this thing called life by ourselves? Zechariah chapter 4 says, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. 
We can't do one thing. Husbands, you can't love your wives. Grandparents, you can't love your grandchildren. As much as we think, oh, we can enjoy them, we can do all this, you can't love them biblically. According to things like 1 Corinthians 13, you can't do anything. There's a reason Jesus said in John chapter 15, when he's imploring us to abide in him and he will abide in us, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's Jesus, the Son of Man, baptized and the Spirit descends on him like a dove and he's led into the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And so the temptations now which follow show Jesus being led by spirit, the Spirit into the wilderness. And again, we have to understand what that means contextually. The wilderness or the desert is a place of nothingness, a place of emptiness. It is not like a beautiful walk. It's not like a hike in the mountains or a walk in the forest or a walk where you go, oh, look at the deer. Don't they look good? There's Bambi taking a drink of water by the brook. There's it's such a peaceful. That is not the biblical wilderness. The biblical wilderness is a dangerous place. It is arid. It is lonely. It is isolated. It is empty. It is a place of nothingness. And that is what our current life in this world, that's why the Lord's Prayer is, Thy will be done on earth, because earth is a wilderness as it is in heaven. And the mission and ministry of the church is to display tastes of the life of heaven on earth, to give that hope to each other and to other people. One commentator put it simply, he said, with the devil's slanderous accusations, if you are the Son of God, he is trying to seduce Jesus into distrusting, forsaking, or misusing his sonship as the aim of the temptations. And see, here's the transcendence of Jesus as our hero, as our superhero, seen here as Jesus is fulfilling his role as the Messiah, identifying with us, taking the temptations that are common to us and facing them himself. He is being our substitute here, not only in death, but in his life. He is doing this identifying with us. We're seeing him in his role as Messiah, beloved son, the climax of the story of the Old Testament. We see echoes of Adam and Eve in the garden where the serpent whispered plausible lies about God, distorting who God is. And here's the serpent, here's the devil, doing the same thing to Jesus. And what do we see here? Jesus succeeding where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus succeeding where Israel failed. This is our transcendent hero, fighting our battle. You realize we need somebody who doesn't, we don't need a coach who sent, sorry Lou, no offense, <laughs> but we don't, uh, I like being a coach too, but we don't need a coach. You know what a coach does? A coach inspires you. A coach says, you can do it, get out there. We need a substitute. We need somebody who gets out on the field for us, faces our enemies, and fights our battle for us. That's Jesus the Messiah, the transcendent hero. But look with me what's next. See, if he was only a transcendent hero, he's far off. 
And can we relate to him? How practical is he? How real is he if he's only son of God, far off, glory and all that? But he's also a relatable hero. Look at the specific temptations. And the text says the devil said to him, and notice what the devil does in every one of these temptations. He's getting him to question his identity. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. You know what that really means? In his humanity, he's tempting him, basically saying, are you sure this is who you are? That can't be your real identity. That's not who you are. That's the devil's schemes all the time in our life. A real Christian wouldn't do that. If you were a good pastor, you'd be able to meet everybody's needs. If you were this, you'd be able to do this. If you were a good mother or father, you wouldn't have this. If you had friends, don't be unaware of of Satan's schemes. Anything that smells of accusation is not from the Spirit of God. It is from the pits of hell. The devil is a slanderer and an accuser and the father of lies. The Spirit of God will be the gentle, tender voice, yes, convicting you of sin, telling you you can be more faithful there. But he will never do it accusing you that you don't measure up. Accusing you if you are. But here is Jesus taking the specific temptation. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is a very human hero. And this makes him very relatable. Each of these temptations concerns itself with a very human area of life. Every one of us needs and deals with issues of food, satisfaction, status, power, image, glory, importance, significance. Every, and these are legitimate human needs. Scotty Smith is kind of a mentor of mine. I've looked up to him for many, many years. And Scotty Smith tells a story of a time where he was really struggling in life. And it was a pivotal moment in his life. And he was good friends with the counselor and the writer, Dan Allender. And Dan Allender challenged him in what he called a very, very loving way. And he says, this this is the kind of friend you need. And Dan Allender said to Scotty, as long as your cry for relief is louder than your cry for a changed heart, you're not going to grow. You're not going to get healthy. Every temptation that we're tempted in is a cry for relief. And if your cry for relief, 
I need to be, I'm empty, I need to be filled now. I'm lonely, I need to have relationship now. If your cry for relief is louder than your cry, make me like Jesus. Holiness is that I would display, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Holiness, make me like the one who the fruit of the Spirit, the personality of Jesus, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, what do you cry louder for? Relief or a Christ-like heart? Relief or practical holiness? See, look at the first temptation, commanding the stone to become bread. See, Jesus is a true man. He must eat bread. We need that. Our Father knows we need that. But here's Jesus. Look what he does. He turns to the Word of God. Specifically here, Deuteronomy chapter 8, where he says, man does not live by bread alone. We need it, but we need more than that. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let me try to be as practical as I can here. See, how does Jesus, and thus how do, how do we in Jesus, through him as our substitute, handle temptation? Part of Jesus being a relatable hero is he's actually celebrating humanity, redeeming and restoring humanity to its created purpose of service and dignity. He calls on scripture, quoting from Deuteronomy, and he says, our physical needs are important, they're essential, but we don't live by them alone. And here's the practical question for us then. Who and what voice are we primarily listening to? Whose word are you functionally listening to? Whose word are you living by? Whose word are you obeying? What voice, what authority is controlling you? The issue here is in our emptiness, the wilderness world is empty. What is it you look to to fill you? Do you look to the voice of God and the word of God? Or are you living your life escaping? Whether it's golf, boating, TV, social media, friendships, family, relationships. Have we ever thought about, here's a Lenten suggestion, have we ever thought about fasting, so to speak, from escapism? What we look to, to, es to escape. Could you fast from golf? Could you fast from boating? Could you fast from Fox News? Could you fast from whatever it is that you look to? Jesus says man does not live by bread alone. We need that. Your Father knows we need that. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second temptation has to do with the issue of authority and glory. And the devil here cannot deliver what he promises. The devil claims authority and glory. And Jesus does say in the Gospel, the Gospel of John specifically, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. God in his sovereignty has given a measure of authority to the devil. Under his sovereignty, the devil has given a glory and authority over the fallen world, a world whose glory is doomed. And again, here's Jesus, as the devil is saying, if you're the son of God, 
he answers this temptation by quoting again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, saying, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. See, we need to recognize the character of God. God loves to give away his glory. Why did he create the world in the first place? Do you think God had a need? No. Love is all about sharing and giving. And God created the world to love and share the enjoyment of his glory. That's the point of the catechism question. The chief end of man is to glory, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because God created us because he knew he would build us, that he would share his love and glory with us, and we would enjoy him. That's what a creature is meant to do. He loves to give his glory, but when we worship and serve, and the two of those always go hand in hand, any other God, we are trying to be like God, usurping his authority. Sound familiar like the original garden? We are deceived trying to have a greater glory, a greater authority, a greater power or control over our lives and our circumstances. And finally, the third temptation. And here, as one writer says, and we have to pay very careful attention to the details, because the text tells us that he brought Jesus to Jerusalem. And as one commentator said, the location of this last temptation in Jerusalem suggests an allusion to the passion. From this moment on, Jesus' life will be a journey to Jerusalem, where he will face again the temptation to abandon his vocation as Christ, the Son of God. See, friends, I want you to think about the overall story of God. Think of its narrative. Think of its narrative arc. Where did it begin? It began in a garden. And then, of course, when Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden, it went to a wilderness. And then back to a garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus will once again face a test to abandon his vocation. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And of course, what was that cup? That was the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's punishment, righteous indignation and righteous wrath for our sin. And Jesus, not abandoning his vocation, says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We need to recognize that even though Jesus is our relatable hero, he is tempted in areas like satisfaction, taking control, status, image, where we are also. There is also a part that's not relatable, that's unique to Jesus alone. We have to recognize, as one commentator put it, the temptation of Jesus by the devil foreshadows the conflict of the passion and the victor victory of the cross. Remember, this is the Christus Victor theme. Already the triumph is anticipated, although it comes in a way that one might not expect. Jesus' battle and complete victory over the devil in the passion and resurrection is one of the great themes of his life, giving rise to the Christus Victor expression of the gospel. But the devil is subtle, and he sees that his chance for victory lies in tempting Jesus to bypass the cross and reach for glory now. Each temptation attempts this. Fill your belly now. Worship me and the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. Throw yourself down from the temple. 
Had Jesus succumbed to any of these temptations, he would have reversed the order of the kingdom, placing glory before suffering. Whereas the entire rhythm of his life was just the opposite. Suffering must precede glory. Now, of course, the unrelatable, unrepeatable aspect of Jesus' vocation was the cross, the passion, what he did for us to redeem and restore us. But friends, trying to be as practical as I can here, we have to recognize that when we are tested, when we are tempted, when we are afflicted, when life is not going our way, when we're not getting what we want, when we're struggling beyond what we can handle, we need to remember that the rhythm of life is not any different from us than it was for Jesus. That the pattern of life is a cruciform pattern. pattern the cross is unrepeatable, but the pattern, a student is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. The pattern for Jesus will be the pattern for us. Suffering first and then glory. Death first and then resurrection. This is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me. It's an evangelistic message different than what we hear today, right? Jesus is inviting people to follow him. This is Jesus' evangelistic message. And it doesn't sound like, accept me into your heart and I'll be your co-pilot. If anyone would come after me, let him take, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That means pattern your life after mine, death first and then resurrection. He who will save his life, and there are all sorts of ways we save our lives. We protect our reputation. We fill our lives. We look for heaven now. We look for fullness now. All those ways. He who will save his life will lose it. But he who will lose his life for my sake, who loves even when you're not loved in return, who loves his enemies even when his enemies hate you. He who will lose his life for my sake. He who does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The promise is you gain real life. It's like Jack Miller always liked to say. You know, Jack Miller had all the cheer up lines. Jack Miller would say, cheer up, you're a whole lot worse than you think. And then he would say, cheer up, friends. You are so far loved than you could ever dare dream or imagine. And we kind of wish he would stop there, right? But he has one more. He says, cheer up. Come and die. It's a great way to come to life. The pattern is suffering, then glory. Death, then resurrection. That's discipleship. If anyone would follow me, it's quite the invitation, right? Let him deny himself, divorce yourself from yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And it is a great way to come to life. Let's pray.